0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Things I Read for My Girlfriend to Fall Asleep. Uh, If you're first joining us, um, this is a podcast type thing where I read articles from various journals and sources, hopefully boring ones, to guide my girlfriend into sleep wherever she may be. Uh, If you're listening to this and are not my girlfriend, thanks for joining us and I hope this can be some use to you as well. episode i'll be reading from national geographic a 1946 issue from october it is volume 90 number four so the excerpt that we'll be reading is called land of the painted ox carts to hear costa rican's talk you would think they lived in lilliput everything they make small the telephone operator asks you for a little coin the taxi driver offers to take you for a little drive And the waiter wants you to wait a little moment while he has the little cook prepare a little meal. From this habit of tacking the diminutive ending eco or tico on nearly everything, neighboring countries have nicknamed Costa Ricans ticos. Small in area and population, less than three quarters of a million people live in the whole country. Tico land is big in its ideals. It's working democracy. Men must vote or pay a fine. It's concept of live and let live. Smallness and equality apply even to the national territory. Distributed widely among small farmers, the land has a, produced a self-reliant yeoman tree with the motto of, a few acres in independence. Typical Central Plateau farmers own their land and home and raise coffee, corn, and vegetables. These together with a yoke of oxen and the famed singing ox cart of the country make up the countryman's riches. Colonists, not conquerors, settled Costa Rica. Spain soon learned that the name Rich Coast was misleading, so far as abundance of gold was concerned. Get-rich-quick characters moved on to yellower pastures. Hard-working settlers, who found their gold in the fertile soil and benign climate of the land, remained. From these descended the homogeneous, light-skinned population of today. Tycos venerate education and learning. Commonly, you will hear them say, we have more teachers than soldiers. And they have. Standards for teachers are high. In the Proyasor, holds a position of respect in the community. High literacy has helped create a numerous white-collar class where women compete with men. Ticos like to say, we have no extremely rich or extremely poor. Here, no one starves. Three-quarters of all Costa Ricans live in the year-round spring of the Central Plateau, a 50-mile-long valley that averages 3,000 feet above sea level. Here, as in most of the highland of Central America, coffee is king. Hot coastlands produce bananas, cacao, abaca, hardwoods, and rubber. Costa Rica even has a miniature Texas of beef, cattle, and plains in the northwest corner of the republic along the Nicaraguan frontier. Situated where North America narrows to form the Panamanian Isthmus before plunging into South America, the country straddles a botanical dividing line. Plant life of both continents meets here. Botanists find the number and variety of plants fantastic. In Flora of Costa Rica, Paul C. Stanley says, quote, No other area of equal size anywhere in America possesses so rich and varied a flora. It is improbable that in any part of Earth, there can be found an equal area of greater biological interest. Costa Rica's variety of climate, in some places temperature changes a degree a minute when climbing or descending, and its extraordinarily productive soil helped agriculturists to choose Turialba as the site of the Inter-American Institute of Agricultural Sciences. Here, plant scientists from various American republics gather to study and teach. New techniques in agriculture and animal husbandry are developed and given to the world. I was struck by the abundance of orchids. Not even in the classic orchid countries of South America had I seen so many orchids for sale and so cheap. So far, about a thousand species and varieties from Costa Rica have been identified the national flower is an orchid. In the capital, San Jose, I talked one day with a friend. He spoke of the high regard of the Spanish-speaking peoples for friendship. Yes, he said, we will do anything for a person whom we find simpatico. We're individualists with, I think, a more subjective outlook than you northerners. For example, our politics are usually politics of personalities, rather than abstract issues. With us, a man's personal opinion and ideas command respect. Nearly every front page of San Jose newspapers featured photographs of prominent men, run with interviews in which they expressed their opinions on topics of the day. Costa Ricans love newspaper polemics. Two men will have long arguments printed in the dailies, sometimes for weeks. These debates take precedence over strictly news items. In other places, such controversies have led to challenges and duels, but not in Costa Rica. Antagonists are often seen convivially drinking together in sidewalk cafes. San Jose has one sidewalk cafe on Central Park where everyone sits to watch the world go by. Ticos sit at the round tables and sip coffee, beer, or soft drinks, while vendors sell lottery tickets and shoeshine boys pointing to immaculate shoes, brassly offer to shine them up. From here you get a good view of the Retreta, the tri-weekly promenade of men and women around the plaza. This old Spanish custom, which has disappeared from most of urban Latin America, still flowers in Costa Rica. While the band plays in the bandstand, women walk in one direction, counterclockwise, and men in the other. I've read several learned explanations of why the sexes walk in opposite directions. Some theories even bring the rotation of the earth into it. However, the real reason seems obvious. They want to look at one another. Costa Rican girls, noted for their good looks, turn out in mass for this promenade. So many stroll in the procession that the column stretches two abreast completely around the park. In the cool night air of the capital, most women wear short fur jackets. Despite silver fox furs, smart dresses, and high heels, few women wear hats, except on Sunday, which they call Hat Day. When I was in San Jose, the U.S. Army was flying its tropics-weary GIs into San Jose twice a week to give them a few days of cool climate and rest. One night, I stood beside a goggle-eyed soldier watching the beauty parade and heard him ask an acquaintance in odd whisper, Say, does this happen every night? Young men line the sidewalks along the park's edge to ogle the girls, and the girls ogle right back, turning their heads and fluttering their eyelashes. Once I heard an ardent type say to two good-looking girls in black, I wonder who died in heaven that angels should wear mourning. Costa Ricans, like most Latins, are gregarious, sociable people. They like to visit with friends in clubs, in homes, and on the streets. They shake hands a lot. Even intimate friends shake hands on seeing each other. Men shake hands when being presented to or taking leave of a woman, though two women never do. They pat the upper arm or shoulder in a typically feminine gesture. Costa Rican girls have several gestures peculiar to themselves. A favorite one points out something or shows direction by pursing the lips and tilting the chin. I had a little difficulty until I found out the meaning of that one. Ticos, like their ox carts, sing when they speak. The lilting cadence of Costa Rican Spanish can even be expressed musically the musical intonation and liberal use of diminutives make tico spanish particularly effective for expressing sentiment and affection much of the social life of san jose centers around the movies the two sunday night performances are the fashionable ones and when the shows change at nine crowds spill off the sidewalk and automobiles pass with difficulty a few minutes before the nine o'clock show begins a siren blows cockro, for the performance and the crowd thins out at once Not all go to the movies. They hasten to leave because no one wants to be last. Be the broom, as they say. Strollers who do not go to the movies usually cross the street to go to a combination tea room, restaurant, and cabaret to dine and dance amid decorations taken from motifs of Spain and Costa Rica. Among the latter are ox cart wheels and oxen yokes, flanking painted stanzas from Julian Martinez's poem, The Romance of the Ox Carts. In the painted ox cart of Costa Rica, the legends, folklore, and national pride of the country come together. The gay vehicles symbolize the sentiment and love of beauty of the Ticos. Each part of the country has its favorite design and color, but all carts must sing. That is, they must rattle in a certain way as they roll. Cartmakers select carefully seasoned wood and painstakingly adjust end play of wheels on the axles so that the resonant rattling and clapping may suit the driver. Friends urged me to go to the town of Sarchi where they said I could see the best examples of ox cart in the making. There, I talked with Joaquin Caveri, from whose shop have come prize winners in recent ox cart competitions. Years ago, he told me, people were satisfied if their carts were merely loud. Now they insist on a clear ringing sound. My father, a long time ago, used to make wheels only of solid mahogany. They had no fame for sound, but they were eternal. Since mahogany and other large-diameter trees, such as Guanacaste, are now relatively scarce, makers build up their apparently solid wheels of 16 wedges, usually of white or yellow alligator wood, present-day favorites. When struck, wheels of these woods ring sharply, like the key of a marimba. Country people boast that they can tell who is approaching at night and at a distance by the sound of his cart. To them, every cart has a voice as individual as that of its owner. Not always do Ticos find the sound of their beloved Ox Carts musical, however. Though Costa Ricans are early risers, carts coming into the city with produce every morning would make a terrific din, so city ordinances prohibit the entry of ox carts before 5 a.m. Railroads connect both coasts of Costa Rica with the capital, and the Central Plateau has a network of good roads, but as yet, no highway completely traverses the country. The route of the Inter-American Highway from Mexico to Panama passes through Costa Rica, and the National Government and the Public Roads Administration of the United States have opened several stretches of the Costa Rican sector. Of most importance economically to the Republic is the part that runs from the capital over the Cerro de la Muerte to the valley of San Isidro del General. Early one morning, I flew over the highway route. Taking off from San Jose, we first detoured over the volcanoes Poax and Irazu, both within a few minutes flying time of the capital. Poas rises 9,055 feet above sea level and presents a tremendous, coffee-colored crater lake to the sky. When the pilot cocked the airplane over in a steep bank, the enormous disk of the crater wheeled slowly beneath us. Poas erupts in a great geyser that bursts through the placid crater lake, spurting a 1,000 feet into the air. Sometimes it erupts every few minutes and then may remain dormant for months, as when I was there. Southeast along the ridge of the Cordillera from Poas, Arasu Volcano thrusts its amorphous bulk to 11,326 feet. Its crater stares upward like a great death's head. From the nose and eye holes, steam clouds rise. Wind and rain have eroded the slopes of the main crater into a million seams and furrows. Past Arasu we flew over Cartago, Costa Rica's second city. Dairy farms and coffee plantations surround the city, and the neat rectangles of the tree-bordered pastures slant up the mountainsides. Dark patches of closely knit trees and shrubs mark the coffee plantations, which need protection from the direct sun. But of all this, you see nothing if you fly over the Republic just before the rains begin in May. Then, farmers burn off scrub and weeds in their fields, and the smoke of the burnings blankets the land in an impenetrable pall. Your airplane will fly on instruments as you climb, until all at once you come out on top and emerge into the clear blue sky, as suddenly as if you had passed through a door. Below lies the smoke, solid and dirty gray its top cut off as smoothly as if sliced by a machete. On this flight, I first heard of Butch, the flying Airedale. This big dog belonged to a highway engineer who flew twice a week to San Isidro before the road was cut through. Butch always went along, the pilot said. In the course of time, a new species of dog began to appear in the streets of San Isidro. Butch was a very sociable dog. The townspeople, never having seen such dogs before, were quick to note the resemblance, and now all dogs of the new breed are known as buchitos, little butches. Beyond Cartago, the inner American highway, still so new that it looked like a raw red scar on the green flanks of the hills, labored upward, toward the Cerro de la Muerte, the dread Hill of Death, 11,615 feet above sea level. Highest point on the highway, the hill presented some naughty engineering problems. During the rainy season, from May to October, torrential downpours loosen the earth, and the whole side of a hill may slough off and carry the work of weeks with it. This, and the fact that neither men nor machines perform at full efficiency at high altitudes, made this part of the construction the most difficult of the whole route. Once over the hill, past the highway road point of 10,932 feet, the highway drops quickly to the lush, hot valley in town of San Isidro. Before the all weather road was open, a trip from Cartago to San Isidro took four painful days on horseback or on foot. Lowland dwellers crossing the windswept hill of death often froze. Now, wheeled traffic makes the run from San Jose to San Isidro in four hours. This not only means that a vital link in the Inter American Highway has been finished, it also opens up a whole fertile section of Costa Rica to trade and commercial development. Lands of the Warm Valley Country produce several crops a year. As compared with the central plateau's one, and San Isidro has boomed since the opening of the road. Some weeks later, when the road was opened between San Isidro and Cartago and the capital, I rode it back over in a jeep. As the road winds up toward the hill, the thick vegetation slowly loses its tropical character. Among the tangle of greenery, slender palms, like walking sticks, shoot up. From the hearts of several species come the delicious palmito, or heart of palm. Similar to the swamp cabbage of the Florida cracker. Unfortunately, to make your salad you have to cut down the whole tree. Farther on we came to <laughs> Farther on we came to the mountain construction camp where I spent the coldest night I experienced in Costa Rica. Beyond, as the highway slopes slowly down toward Cartago, one passes through an imposing forest of great oak trees, dominated by the Kobe Oak. A white oak unknown to science as a species until four years ago. Its massive trunk rises clear to a height of 80 feet above the first limb, then onto 125 feet or more. Lianas, bromeliads, lichens, mosses, and orchids make an herbarium of each tree. Near here, giant tree ferns with their diamond pattern trunks look like trees rising from some steamy swamp of the coal age. I remarked to my companions. This looks like Quetzal country. You won't see any here, they said. Back in San Jose, we can take you to a friend who can show you all you want. In Guatemala, some years before, I had heard much of the Quetzal, the long-tailed green and red bird that is the national emblem of that republic. I'd never seen one there alive. In fact, Guatemala prohibits the capture or killing of a Quetzal. Everyone told me the bird would die in captivity, and for this reason, it was the national symbol of liberty. Now, in San Jose, I met Lieutenant Colonel Alberto Montes de Oca. He says, There are plenty of quetzals here in Costa Rica. At my dairy farm up on Erasu, I have a dozen in a flying cage. How do I catch them? With a butterfly net, I pick them out of trees at night while they sleep. This I must see, I said. So Don Alberto invited me to go quetzal hunting with him. I used to have 76 hummingbirds in a cage, he added. Fed them on melon's food. Alberto's Hacienda Santa Maria clings to the side of Arasu, in a cloud-hung clearing 7,500 feet above sea level. Above it rise the rich pastures that help produce the famous milk of the region. Along the zigzag course of the mountain brooks and in steep-sided hollows, clumps of wood remain, principally moss-hung oaks, monotonously dripping the moisture of the cloud forest. In their damp gloom, the Quetzal loves to live. In a big flying cage before the glass-veranded house, more than a dozen kettles flashed from perch to perch. Most of these are females, said Don Alberto, and lack the bright red breast and long tail-covered feathers of the male. One nearly adult male, however, preened his metallic green-gold feathers among his duller mates. That night, we ate a country supper of black beans, eggs, and tortillas, and clabbered milk, the beloved natilla of Costa Rica. Alberto briefed me. In order to catch a quetzal, you have to know where he sleeps. About four in the afternoon, the birds begin to look for a resting place. Once you see them settle down in a tree, mark it in your mind so that you can find it after dark. Several years ago, when Alberto first became interested in studying quetzals, he had tried to call to them by whistling, as they did at roosting time. No luck. One day, he heard in his house a sound like a quetzal calling. His little girl had passed with a doll clutched to her breast alberto took the doll from her and squeezed it an imprisoned quetzal seemed to be calling to him from inside despite the child's wails and with the light of holy zeal in his eyes alberto disemboweled the doll and took out the little paper and wood bellows that made it cry with this he had been able to call a quetzal into any tree he chose but the bellows had worn out he said sadly and though he eviscerated two other dolls their voice boxes were not so effective I asked Alberto how he could keep quetzals so alive and well when everyone said it could not be done. Simple, he said, just give them the right food. Reaching into a box, he brought out a handful of what looked like rough-skinned green olives. If you can feed them these and keep them at the altitude they like, they'll thrive in a cage. The fruit, called in Costa Rica, quisada, grows in most of Costa Rica's highlands. On close inspection, it looks like a miniature avocado, with its yellowish pulp and Big Pip. The taste is hot and peppery. But how can they, I started. Never mind, said Alberto, tossing the fruit back. You'll see a chance to see for yourself tomorrow. We slept under heavy blankets while rain drowned loudly on the roof. It was still raining the next morning when we saddled horses and started up the mountain. Bad light for photography, said Alberto, but first-rate Quetzal weather. The wind blew the rain in horizontal gusts, and the lichen-covered trees jerked and creaked. Excellent, excellent, Alberto kept muttering to himself. What's excellent? I asked sourly. The weather, man. The quetzals won't hear us with the wind howling like this. We can get much closer to them. After we had dismounted and stood for nearly an hour under a big orchid-studded oak, with runnels of water trickling down our necks, Alberto gripped my arm and pointed silently. There, though I had not seen it arrive, was my first Costa Rican wild quetzal female sitting on a swaying branch alternately obscured by swaying leaves and the flapping branches. They never sit in the cassara tree to feed. Watch, Alberto whispered. As he spoke, the quetzal flew across the clearing in a series of dips to a fruit-laden branch where, hovering like a hummingbird, she plucked a whole fruit and then flew back to her original perch. Now I began to see why some discarded fruits we had picked off the ground had been crisscrossed with cuts. Jerking her head, The Quetzal began to turn the fruit end for end, trying to get the small end pointing inward. She worried with it for about a minute, then with an upward jerk, she got it down, the fruit making a lump that moved slowly down her throat. We watched for about 20 minutes while the bird sat, feathers fluffed out, digesting the tidbit. Suddenly she opened her beak and up came the shiny red pip, clean as a china nest egg, and fell to the ground. All day we watched and made motion pictures of Quetzals using a telephoto lens, while two men held a poncho over the camera. Late in the day, the birds began returning with increasing frequency to certain trees, and to whistle a single clear melancholy note. They're choosing their sleeping places, Alberto whispered. At last, the quetzals ceased flying about, and only the liquid whistles, sounding like something out of green mansions, issued from the sodden trees. It grows dark with a leap in Central America, and I stumbled as I followed Alberto and his man up the hill. Underfoot, writhing, luminous fireworms wrote a blue-green shorthand in the darkness. When we felt our way to a tree we had spotted as a quetzal dormitory, Alberto cautiously switched on his flashlight, throwing the beam upward. In the circle of light shone the red breast of a quetzal that slept with its head turned back on its shoulder, not ten feet off the ground. Alberto passed me the flashlight. I held the bird focused in the beam while he fitted together the jointed pole that carried two black nets fastened to hoops. Slowly raising the Y-shaped net until it was only a few inches below the bird, Alberto suddenly gave it an upward thrust and the bird tumbled into one of the nets. That night, we captured three. One Alberto caught with his bare hands. Alberto's quetzals eat the actual quixarra fruit for the first week or two, or a similar kind called ida. Several farmhands keep busy gathering fruits from trees all over the mountainside. Then Alberto weans the birds. Making a paste of sweet potato, plantain, eggshells, pablum, and other ingredients, he rolls the mixture into little balls and removing the seed from the split fruit, stuffs the paste into the cavity. The birds cheerfully eat the stuffed quesadá fruit for some time until they're finally given little balls of the paste alone. Occasional bits of meat replace the insects in their natural diet. In this way, Alberto has kept quetzals thriving for more than two years. Some of the birds Alberto bans and releases Others, he sends to zoos. After coffee, bananas have always been Costa Rica's big export. The United Fruit Company first started its large-scale banana growing operations in Costa Rica. For years, Limon, on the east coast, tapped a vast area of level banana farms, a world of railway spurs, rail cars, and heavy rains. About a decade ago, Sigataka, or Circospora leaf spot, I have no idea what that means, began to make inroads on orderly plantations, but Panama disease, the big problem, was already there. So heavy was damage from both that today banana growing on a big scale has virtually died out on the Caribbean side. The industry has moved to the Pacific. To see the original area, familiarly known to Tico's as The Line, I rode down to the port with Chief Engineer Charles Avede in a Chevrolet mounted on the rails. The Railroad to Limon clings to the side of the deep ravine made by the Tazón River. Largest river entirely within the country, it brawls white-foamed and shallow over a rocky bed, which precludes navigation. Cormorants fish from its boulders, and moss-festooned trees hang over the noisy depths. This is the country of the big rains. Land here continually moves and shifts, Mister Avera said, and when it rains heavily, which is most of the time, we get landslides. As we clicked around a curve, he pointed out a yellow scar far above the line, where a slide had torn away the rock and earth face of a hill. A temporary trestle carried the rails out and around the slide. Tinkling pieces of falling shale and showers of rattling gravel warned repair workers that the mountain was not yet restored to equilibrium. While a steam shovel was working to clear away the debris, a second slide had engulfed it, killing two men. Railroading along here is anything but dull, remarked Avede. Recently, we had a rainfall of 60 inches in 14 days, better than 4 inches a day. Heavy rainfall is good for the banana plant, which averages 85% water. As the line descended, it grew hotter, and the vegetation looked more tropical. Breadfruit trees with deep scalloped leaves appeared, and then squat cacao trees, with green and brown pods like miniature footballs hanging from trunks and limbs, lined the right of way. On sliding racks, red-brown cacao beans dried in the sun. I remembered that in pre-conquest times in Mexico, Aztecs used cacao beans for currency. Fortunes in cacao money lay in the sun nearly all the way to Limón. On the coast plain at last, the line flattened and ran straight between plantations of banana-like abaca. Abaca, or manila hemp, belongs to the banana family, but resists diseases of the fruit plant. Plantings in this area total several thousand acres. All come from original cuttings set out in 1925 in Panama. Four countries of Central America planted abaca at World War II's beginning. Costa Rica now has the largest single block of abaca planting in Central America. Panama has the largest plantation. Like the banana, abaca grows from a piece of rootstock set into the ground. Workers cut the thickest of the broadleaf stems, peel off the outer layers, then pass the stalks through a series of rollers which squeeze and scrape off the green pulp leaving only the tough, yellowish fibers. Dried in hot air ovens, the fibers go into bales for shipment, for cordage. Limón itself, principal port of Costa Rica, has wide paved streets in the arcades and balconies of the West Indies. Ships sail from Limón with cargoes of balsa, mahogany, rubber, cacao, and small amounts of bananas raised by private growers. Rubber of the genus Castilla, or wild Central American type, comes mostly from the San Carlos River area, northwest of Limón, on the Nicaraguan frontier. Cutters worked through this vast jungle area, slashing wild trees with machetes and tearing off the dried black latex and strips, baracha, exactly as I had seen them do in Nicaragua. During the war, balsa wood had found use in aircraft and life raft construction. At a processing plant in Limon, I watched stacked loads of balsa planks drying in steam kilns. For several days, water pours in a continuous jet from the kilns. When the wood comes out, it weighs only half as much as it did when it went in. At the balsa plant, I met a Texan who, according to his boss, had gone native on the Caribbean coast, wandering from job to job. One day, he introduced his boss to a woman and said proudly, We're going to be married in three months. But I thought you had a wife, said the boss. Oh, her. She was on six months probation, but only lasted five months and two weeks. (laughs) Whatever that means. (laughs) Bananas require nine to 12 months to produce fruit suitable for cutting. Together with a hot, sunny climate, they need heavy rainfall, well distributed throughout the year. In Costa Rica, rainfall on the Caribbean side average 129 inches a year. On the west coast, 122 inches. Not much difference, but the catch lies in the distribution. Although it rains practically throughout the year on the east coast, rain stops for about four and a half months along the Pacific. When large-scale banana growing migrated from east to west because of plant disease, Some way had to be devised to supply moisture to the bananas during the dry months. Engineers of the United Fruit Company finally worked out an overhead spray system of rotating portable nozzles, which, turning slowly through a complete circle, irrigate 3.34 acres at a time. Vertical towers rise from pipelines laid in a grid throughout the farm. Workers move nozzles from day to day to cover the whole plantation. Growers shifted to the Pacific Coast, principally because of Panama disease, which comes from a fungus in the soil. The disease was less prevalent in West Coast lands. Planters combat cigataca, a form of leaf blight, by spraying plants with Bordeaux mixture. All the lands now occupied by banana farms on the Pacific coast, Barita and Cape Aspalo, Punta Nenas, and further south, Palmar and Golfito. Dentally forested mountains fall sheer into the Pacific at the port of Golfito on Golfo Dulce. Earth and trees were cut away to make the ports, airfields, and railroads that run inland to the farms. I rode in an oversized railcar from Golfito to the farm center of Palmar. Felled boles of huge trees from the dense forest on both sides lay beside the track. Purple heart trees tower 70 feet into the air. Their heartwood, smooth, dense, and wine-colored, is much prized by cabinet makers for ornamental work. Here, it grows so commonly that settlers used it for the upright posts in their thatch huts. Flocks of plush tanagers flew up before us. Velvety black with fire-red backs, they looked like flames taken wing. Big-billed toucans solemnly cocked their heads to look down at us, and green parakeets flew overhead, sounding like rusty gate hinges in flight. Macaws, parrots, and parakeets seem always to fly in pairs. Even when in large flocks, the little green parakeets fly two by two, like the passengers of the Ark. Yellow-headed parrots usually fly in groups of six or eight, and the magnificent red, blue, and yellow macaws wing in single pairs. Often at dusk, one will hear, emanating from a tree, a conversation like the mumbling of two toothless women, a pair of yellow-headed parrots talking themselves to sleep. The driver of the rail car talked of monkeys. Do you know the Carri Blancos, señor? The white-faced monkeys? I said I had seen such capuchin monkeys only in San Jose Zoo. Well, they are the most intelligent, the man said. When they go to rob a cornfield, they post one monkey as sentinel. They twist the ears of corn until they come off, then tie the husks of two ears together and throw them over their shoulder, like a man carrying saddlebags. But if the farmer surprises them at it because of the watchman monkey's negligence, they chase the poor sentinel and make kindling of him. They beat him until he cries. As we approached Palmar, orderly rows of banana plants lined the tracks, their broad leaves glistening under the spray of irrigating jets. In some places, the jets swung across the line, and we had to run the gauntlet of the cool spray. On the farms, they showed me several stages of growth of the banana plant, which grows from a piece of rootstock to a height of 18 to 25 feet in Central America. Each plant produces only one bunch or stem of bananas, which emerges from the center of the broad leaves and droops to one side, the hands of bananas, pointing upward like fat green fingers. The plant produces its single stem of fruit and then dies. New plants spring up from shoots or suckers around the base of the original planting. Harvesting goes on continually, bananas being cut while green. If left on the plant, they would ripen partially, but with poor flavor and would not be in condition to stand the journey north. Using a long-handled, sharp spade, the cutter first slices off the pendant, red-tipped flowering stalk, then cuts nearly through the trunk of the plant. As the tree slowly begins to topple over, the cutter eases its descent with the cutter pole. Another worker, the backer, receives the stem on a little cushion on his shoulder, and the stem is cut free. From now on, the bananas are pampered and protected on their way north, first in slat-sided freight cars lined with dried banana leaves then in holds of specially cooled ships. As a boy, I used to watch banana ships unload on the Boston waterfront. One of the sights that puzzled me was a man solemnly thrusting a thermometer into a banana. I found later that, in this way, he tested the rate of ripening. Before the war, an average of four million stems of bananas was exported from Costa Rica each year. Up the coast from Golfito, another new seaport, Capos, serves as an outlet to extensive banana lands centering around Parita. Off Capos, game fish abound. A list of inshore and offshore fishes caught would include red snapper, rooster fish, Spanish mackerel, tuna, jack crevally, rainbow runner, dolphin, shark, and giant sailfish. Some sailfish weigh well over 100 pounds. Tuna, which school in countless numbers off the coast, bring commercial fishermen down from California ports. United States tuna fishermen well know Punta Reinas, which lies on the Golfo de Nicoya. To Punta Arenas runs the electrified railway from San Jose. Nearly as much English and Portuguese are heard in its streets as Spanish. Many United States tuna fishermen are of Portuguese descent. From Punta Arenas, boats sail to the head of the Golfo de Nicoya, then up the Tempisque River through Guanacaste, a cattle-raising province. In Guanacaste, Vast savannas, studded with umbrella-like Juanacaste trees, stretch to the horizon. Averaging only a few hundred feet above sea level, Juanacaste is hot. In Liberia, capital of the province, I attended a cattle fair. Here, I saw the Punto Juanacasteco, national dance of the country, danced with typical cowboy exuberance. Amid high-pitched ululations, dancers stamp and whirl, occasionally interrupting the marimba and guitar music with a shout of Bomba to recite one of the humorous and ribald verses of this name I saw one happy cowpuncher puncher with leather fringed chaps throw his hat on the ground leap over it and shout I won't swallow the Sun only because I don't want to leave the world in darkness when was once part of Nicaragua and the way the Juanacastecans dropped the s's when speaking reminds one of that neighboring country but Juanacastecans are Costa Ricans to the core though they carefully distinguish themselves and their compatriots from the highlands whom they call Cartegos. Juanacaste's ebullience and love of exaggeration for effect reminded me of our own frontier days, of a man who talks a lot, promises much, but does nothing. They say, he is all feathers, but he doesn't fly. Once, when according to custom, an effigy of the child Jesus was mounted on a live burrow for a religious procession, the animal started to bulk and kick at the most solemn moment. the figure, fastened though it was to the saddle, began to teeter. Spectators, finished horsemen and all, whooped and threw their hats in the air, shouting advice and encouragement. With perfect respect mingled with regional pride, they yelled, Hang on, Jesus! Don't let anyone say Wanaka can't ride. Liberia, the white city, lives up to its name blindingly in the dry season. Streets are carpeted with soft white dust, which muffles the sound of horses' hooves to a muted thudding horsemen ride through a golden haze of sun and dust. With a friend, I rode out of Liberia at day's end. After the red bonfire of sunset, night comes suddenly on the plains. We watched a crescent moon nearly embrace a planet in its encircling arms as it rose, first yellowing, then silvering the flat roofs of Liberia. From the lamp-lighted houses at the hound's edge came the sound of a guitar. My Tico friend turned to me and said, Costa Rica is a good place to live. I lived there for a while and I think he is right.